bani. Hi everyone, uh, this is Andy. This is an uh, interview episode with Professor Adolf Reed. He is Professor Emeritus at University of Pennsylvania's Political Science Department. Um, he's written in many places like Jacobin, The Nation, Nonsite.org. He has a new podcast called Class Matters Podcast. And, uh, you know, two years ago, I talked to my college friend on this podcast, uh, Merlin Chowquinian, about work he had done with Reed on racial reification in statistics and what is the relationship between race and class and broader social dynamics. And so this conversation is thematically connected to that. Um, the exact uh, kind of occasion is Reed has a new book out with Verso called The South, Jim Crow and Its Afterlives. Um, it is not a memoir, but it is kind of a personally driven argument uh, where he kind of, you know, re- re- recalls what race was like in the South, in the Jim Crow South as he was growing up. Uh, more broadly, it is a kind of a forceful cr- criticism of what he characterizes as a sort of neoliberal race politics um, of of the present that is kind of dominant in U.S. Race, discussions about race and you know you know race without class in, in this country. So um, we get into the book, we get into some of the broader thematic arguments he's making. Um, you know, Reed is also probably well known to some of you as being profiled in places like the New Yorker, the New York Times, as um, sort of this crude materialist class reductionist critic of black politics of anti-racism politics. We get into that. We get into that a little bit, and and what he thinks about that that accusation. It gets a little academic. We get into some of his academic writings, some other books that kind of give a more nuanced account of the relationship of race and class and uh, in U.S. history. So you know, it's a little academic, but hopefully, it's not uh, unclear. We try to be as clear as possible. Two other quick notes. Um, the first one is that um, I fucked up the audio. I apologize for this. I'm mad at myself for doing that, but. You know, we try to fix it as much as possible with um, our friend of the show, James. And the audio is mostly okay when he is talking by himself. I am talking by myself. But when we're talking at the same time, uh, my voice gets, you know, very concealed and quiet and get and a few words drop out. So I, I very much apologize for that. Secondly, after the interview was over, uh, I read and I kind of kept talking. It often I kept talking about um, a shared passion for NBA basketball and um, I put it at the end after the outro music as kind of bonus content. I know not everyone likes sports and the NBA, but um, you know, for those who are curious, what what Reed thinks about the NBA, um, that's in there as sort of bonus content. And you can you can hear my opinions also about James Harden. Okay, so on to the interview. And the new book is The South. Great. Um, why don't we just begin by you know this book has been out for a few months. Um, there's been a few interviews you've given. How do you mm-hmm. feel so far about the reaction, the kind of conversations it's been starting? Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's a really interesting question, Andy. Um, yeah, I guess it's okay. I mean, like, I've been getting um, you know, unsolicited um, comments from people, and some of them from people whom I know, which is, you know, nice also. But, I mean, uh, you probably know that one of, uh, you, you know, my concerns about how the book has received is that I did not want it to be perceived as a memoir. And... And there was a moment when the book was in production at Verso that a former advisor of mine at Penn actually uh, sent me the listing from Amazon. And I hadn't even seen the jacket cover yet. And it was like not only memoir, but, you know, coming of age narrative, <laughs> uh, travelogue even they mentioned. Yeah. And I just sent an email to everybody that I knew at Verso saying uh, it, 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 it was what used to be called a flame email. <laughs> uh, and 
And the crescendo was like, I'd rather let, let the fucking manuscript die on my laptop than have it go out like this. But anyway, they straightened that out. And the publicist has been quite, quite good. The thing that, um, the, that, that, that I was um, most kind of turned off by was the New Yorker profile. Because uh, I spent a lot of time talking to the guy. He also talked to six or seven people who've known me for a long time and worked with me for a long time. But I think that when he may just have had difficulty wrapping his arms around the the task, okay. and and when he had to like he he just fell back onto the standard thing that you know kind of thing that they do at the New Yorker. But um, which which is what? Uh, it's like uh, um, academic gossip. Right. Yeah. Or or for like uh, uh, somebody else I know once mentioned, pardon me, years and years ago, uh, that a friend of his who used to work as a New Yorker said, look, the thing about the New Yorker is that it's really it's it's key audience is people who don't live in New York, but wish that they did. <laughs> right? uh, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> right. So some of that. Right. Uh, yeah. But also like the political stuff, he just had trouble. Uh, wrapping his mind around, so he fell back on what, what, what by now to me is a pretty tiresome thirty-plus-year-old narrative that you know read as a flamethrower or a bomb thrower or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but, but luckily, um, he he sent that to me. Uh, yeah, actually thinking I would like it, but I got it on a Sunday night. I just gotten home and read it and and was kind of turned off. But fortunately, the next morning I got both. Uh, the interview that John Queeley did in Common Dreams, which was really good and clear, and also the podcast from Harper's, which was also great. Um, I guess there's been, um, shall we say, a less than enthusiastic response from the Black nationalist world. Uh, and um, I did one podcast, Jared Balls, who just kind of, you know, I don't know whether he didn't read the book or read the book and still didn't read it, <laughs> but he fixated on a passing reference that I made to Malcolm X, and he zeroed in on my use of the verb retail um, to describe how people subsequent to Malcolm, I'm pretty sure, uh, had made this 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 quip that he or, or taken the quip that he made like in the mid '60s, uh, criticizing the the civil rights movement. Um, but that's all 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 Jared wanted to talk about. But I, you know, I didn't think that nationalists were going to engage with this book anyway. So. Yeah. But but in general, I guess I'd say I've been pretty pleased. I mean, people seem more more or less to get it. And I mean, um, and most of the comments that I've heard are from people who who appreciate the kind of uh, well, for the effort to put some social texture, social uh, and really human. But yeah, but but to be a human after all is to be social. <laughs> right? I, yeah. Well, we have to say that out loud even though thatcher's been dead for a number of years uh, uh but i appreciated the effort to put some texture right yeah. like in, in in the understanding of the jim crow order and and take kind of its uh, both its historicity and of course its rootedness in political economy yeah um so we should say you know for listeners that you know the premise of the book of the book is you know you're born in the 40s you say that you were the last generation to kind of live through the Mm-hmm. I would figure what you call it, kind of the dying, the dying, the, the death of Jim Crow in the right. 60s. Yeah. Um, your experiences are mostly in New Orleans, parts of North Carolina, Atlanta. You have family in Arkansas and Cuba and New York. Um, so th- mm-hmm. these are kind of the places you, like it, you locate yourself. 
Um, and your periodization is roughly like 1890s or so is the consolidation mm-hmm. and the end of right. the 60s. Right. Um, and you said, you know, I, I've seen you say uh, elsewhere, you, this is not a memoir. Because <laughs> I assume it's because you want to make sure you, you know, people know it's, it's an argument. Like the point is not just right. to give your life story, but to also make an argument. Right. right. Well, yeah. And see, I'm basically a really private person. Uh, yeah. And it's like a combination of just being freakishly private, but also you know, a particular kind of Catholic upbringing that doesn't that, that makes you not want to draw attention to yourself. It just feels like vanity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and then also, you know, right, I'll be yeah, you know, I won't be coy about this, but right? I'm that kind of Marxist that, you know, that sees myself, and my politics as a cog. Right. A really simple cog in 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 what should be a much bigger tide and movement. Right. Um, so. Right. And I've never really, I mean, ever um, you know, described myself as a leader right, of anything, uh, nor nor do I think I've ever uh, um, I've ever referred to myself as an activist because <laughs> I'm not even sure what an activist is. You know what I mean? Right. Except somebody who runs around with a bullhorn. <laughs> right, I'm waiting for something to happen. <laughs> right. right, right. So, so yeah, I mean, and and in fact, the first draft of of what became the book, which I wrote like pretty early in the century, uh, in Bush's first term. Oh, okay. So this book yeah. has been sitting around for a while. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it was like, well, say I wrote myself into that no person's land of fifteen thousand words. Yeah, yeah. Right, <laughs> uh, and it sat there, and I mean, um, eventually. Um, Barbara Jean Fields was the person who asked to read it, read it, and then quite uh, decently kept pressing me to publish it. Right. Uh, and, 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 and an editor, a friend of hers took a look at it. Uh, the woman who actually lived across the street from my house in New Haven, I didn't know her when I lived there, <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, um, but she encouraged putting a lot more personal stuff in it, and uh, yeah, I just couldn't do it. Uh, so then, a little while later, my former agent Faith Childs in Manhattan agreed to take a look at it, and she wrote back with like a dozen or so specific suggestions. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that I could follow. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, um, but but yeah. So in the fifteen thousand word manuscript, there are like several. Uh, yeah, I mean, it ends with six or seven vignettes, which all of which, or almost all of which appear in, in the book. And each of those vignettes is sort of kicked off by some personal experience of mine. Right. Uh, but, but like the personal experience is even less than a booster rocket, right? It's not yeah. uh, right. It, it, <laughs> well, it's just a hook to get in right. to, uh, to, to, to the historical narrative. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's a little more than that now. And there's a lot more personal stuff yeah. or, or not personal so much as stuff, uh, around my own life and personal experiences yeah. right in the book than that, than there was like in the earlier version, but, yeah. but I'm okay with it, but yeah. I think it's not no, too much. I think it's it. super readable and clear. Um, and you know, oh, oh good. Thank you. Yeah. Without, hopefully without feeling like you violate your privacy. Um, right. Yeah. So that's interesting that you wrote the first draft so early because my impression was um, part of the impetus was this moment we're in that, you know, we've commented about a lot where like Jim Crow seems to, you know, kind of get forgotten in the way that we talk about race right. in this in the U.S., um, you know, the last decade or so, I'd say within the academy, but also outside the academy. Right. There's been this idea like we have to go back to slavery 
um, which I think is important. I, like, I, and I wrote about the 19th century, my history stuff. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that stuff is interesting, of course. But then you're saying, but you've also had a kind of uh, a criticism that like there's a, there's a sort of political choice that gets made when you look at slavery and skip over Jim Crow. Right. right? Right. Do you want to kind of flesh out like why you feel yeah, sure. yeah. to locate Jim Crow? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Um, so that was, yeah, yeah the most immediate uh, impetus for this was, was I've mentioned this a number of places too, probably in the book as well, but, um, but um, just, just a series of more or less random you know, ongoing conversations with a couple of friends and colleagues, <clears throat> both of whom have roots in the Deep South. Uh, one seven years older, the other a decade younger, and 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 the younger guy, <clears throat> pardon me, kind of grew up in an Air Force family, so his experience of East Arkansas, where his parents are from, was like mainly summers and one year when his dad was stationed in Alaska or someplace or Europe, or whatever. Uh, you know, when he was there in school, and um, and I mean, funny thing was like in the. Uh, Early 2000s, I think, or mid 2000s, we took. Um, we did a couple of road trips and you know, through, through through the Mississippi Delta, which we'd been talking about doing for a long time. Yeah. And on one of them, <clears throat> we stopped in Wynn, where his family's from, and went to um, you know, the old family house. And uh, while we were there, a guy pulled up next door, uh, and it turns out this guy. You know, not only is uh, a railroad worker and a member of the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Maintenance of Way Employees, which is a division of the Teamsters that I've had a close relationship to for thirty years, but uh, but he's also the guy whom Ken played with as his best friend on the year that he was in school down here. Which, oh, okay. But yeah, but 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 so anyway, um, but we just started talking about this that that both that when that when our rough cohort leaves, there won't be anybody around anymore with any direct connection to it. And, and the part that I didn't quite uh, articulate in the book uh, or, or or at least not as forcefully was that, that that fact um, provoked something like a panicked reaction among us (laughs) because of thinking about the state of scholarship, right. About the era And, and even good stuff. Right. Um, I mean, for instance, um, there were two books in the late 80s, early 90s, I think, on in Mississippi that were kind of field changing, really good. Neil with Neil McMillan's Dark Journey and uh, James Cobb's The Most Southern Place on Earth on the Mississippi Delta. And they altered you know, the character of, of Mississippi history, as it were, because they wrote blacks and the civil rights struggle and, and a disfranchisement in in a more direct and open way. So they were great. But what struck me about both of them was that they ran out of steam completely at 1970. Uh, And it's because, and this is understandable too, but they got so captured by the heroic narrative, right, of of the high period of civil rights activism that they completely uh, um, overlooked, um, you know, the reality that there was, you know, a kind of mundane clientelist politics that, that that even in Mississippi connected blacks with, with some factions of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Uh, so there was a normal politics there, and as we've seen in almost all of the rest of the country, what what the Voting Rights Act or or or, or down or the main downstream consequence or, or entailment of the Voting Rights Act was um, to 
uh, empower, as it were, uh, you know, those um, mainstream political tendencies, right, yeah. at the national level as well as the local level. And if you miss that, you can't figure out how to explain, like, for instance, um, when um, when um, Trent Lott was having one of his moments of expose for for having had segregationist connections. You need a Blackwell as a black woman who, who was a hero of the civil rights movement, who was mayor of either Mound Bayou or some little town. Uh, no, I think she's mayor uh, of, um, uh, well, yeah, well, she's mayor of some little town in Mississippi. Yeah. Pops up on a Nightline defending Trent, Trent Lott. So you want to say, yeah. well, I mean, how does this happen? And the standard sellout narrative is so easy for people uh, or, you know, the misleadership thing, which I never liked either. Um that they get in the way of, of so, so kind of romantic or otherwise naive um, understanding of the political prehistory of, of the post-segregation era. Yeah. It actually gets in the way of understanding the dynamics driving the post-segregation era, right? Yeah. And, and frankly, the slavery thing, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, well, well, I think another problem that the book wants to address, right, is, you know, for most people, uh, and even most educated people, most people who say, I don't know, read The New Yorker, um, there was, uh, you know, uh, 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 between 1619 or whatever date you want to take as BC, right? right? (laughs) Uh, And, 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 and the 1963 March on Washington, right? Uh, There was like, a blur, right? Uh, that 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 I've that, that that I've often referred to as the uh, bad old timey times, right? Yeah. There was slavery and Jim Crow, but they're basically like the same thing, right? They're the bad, 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 bad old days, and and my sons often described it as a as a as an indistinguishable period um, that that was anchored to uh, white people's desire across the board. Um, to um, run a, a sadistic camp right. for black people, right? right? Yeah. Uh, as Barbara Fields often points, or has pointed out, that, that the way people talk about slavery and Jim Crow, for that matter, you think the point was to produce, you know, white supremacy, not cotton and right. and, and cane and, yeah. and, and 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 rice or whatever. Yeah, no, and that's something I noticed. You know, I actually teach the, that fields essay every semester in my in my class, and I've read it so so many times at this point. And one thing I noticed in that essay in your writing, you you both of you frequently use this term practical and pragmatic. Like this is mm-hmm. to think about this as opposed to like um, it's not as opposed to like white supremacy is practical; right. it serves a purpose. It was a means to an end, you know, right. like capitalist accumulation or something. Right. It wasn't an end in itself. Um, and, you know, so on, on the point you kind of started with earlier, you, you early on say in the book, you know, most people who know about Jim Crow know about like Bull Connor and the Klansmen and mm-hmm. imagery like uh, water fountains at lunch counters. And, um, you know, you're suggesting that even if you frame it this way, which is, you know, not not untrue, um, that still obscures the mo- what you call the most basic truth of the white supremacist South. It was a coherent social order constructed and maintained. By specific social interests, the political and economic institutions that channel the experience of everyone in the region, and and so you're kind of critical of this idea that Jim Crow, slavery, or whatever is depicted such that the point of it just was to be racist, you know, as right. in itself. And 
you know, you're saying it's actually about sustaining a class yeah. order. Um, well, 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 yeah, yeah. And, and, and frankly, and it kind of strikes me as being a pretty bizarre notion, right? Because after all, if it was all about hating black people, then the simplest thing right. to have done what would have been to leave them in Africa. Right. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> yeah I think, I think um, professor field says that in that essay. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I was actually, I went back. Um, I think the first thing I read by you in 2012 or 13, you had this essay about Django Unchained. Oh yeah. And the help, right. And the help is, yeah. you know, I've, I've never seen it, but it's about like domestic help in the South and Jim right. Crow. And it's easy to make fun of the film, but you're kind of saying right. this is basically most people's understanding anyway. Right. And, no, that's true. And, right. And there you're saying again, like the point of the film, the, the, what the film portrays Jim Crow, like the problem with Jim Crow is like, it didn't listen to voices. It didn't mm-hmm. respect people enough. Like, and, and the whole political right. economic dimension is more or less sanitized. And you're kind of saying this is kind of emblematic of most discussions. Oh yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. I and mean, it's unfortunate, but I think it is. I mean, yeah, it's funny. Like I, so after I saw the film and before um, I made the decision to write something. Um, I thought I'd try to read Stockman's book, but eh, I just couldn't. Yeah. But but why did you uh, watch the film anyway? Like I would avoid it. I would have yeah. avoided it. Well, see, for me, it's an occupational hazard, right? Yeah. I don't want to watch Django either, and, and um, because I so yeah, at some point, like in the early '90s, right? And yeah, you know, I was hanging out with some film school types, right? And and this is when. Tarantino was just becoming right. Right. Uh, so I went to see uh, the Reservoir Dogs film. Yeah. And it came with all this hype about what Tarantino was doing and like homage to this, homage to that. Um, I read a long interview with him later that made clear that he was basically like an idiot who who grew up locked in a blockbuster. So that's all he knew. Right. But uh, um, but. But I mentioned that to say that I decided right before the 90s were over that um, there's clearly a universe of people that Tarantino makes movies for. And I'm clearly not part of that universe. So I was never tempted to see another one. Like I never saw Pulp Fiction. I never saw um, uh, well, but the Uma Thurman one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kill, um, Kill Bill, yeah. Yeah. But, but um, and I kept waiting for Django to go away. And see, this is my my experience with this sort of race conscious popular culture stuff it it pops up i try to ignore it and (laughs) then i notice it and then it doesn't go away and when it doesn't go away like i like i eventually you know every now and then i don't do it for every one of them obviously uh you know but every now and then i say okay well i just need to write something about this right it's well but it's like an ethical responsibility, right? And I've often, you know, connected it to stuff like, you know, as professors and especially as professors at fancy places, we have jobs that are so much softer than the jobs that the vast majority of Americans work. And we should have some social obligation. And (laughs) part of mine is every now and then to write about some of these shitty movies, right? (laughs) Uh, but, but, But what got me about the Django thing, well, yeah, well, yeah, the help was the help, right? Yeah. Um, and and by the way, um, years before that, obviously, um, you know, when Driving Miss Daisy came out uh, at the end of the 80s, um, I was quite circumspect, right, just from looking at the trailers. And m- many, many people, and people whose um, 
opinions I would take somewhat seriously, and including people in my own family and from my parents' uh, generation, who whom, whom I would assume to have like a more uh, um, to have sensors that were at least as acute as mine, right? And, and they most often did, right? But they all said, no, 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 like it's not what you think. So I get in the theater and and I settle in, and within five minutes, it 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 was clear that it was exactly what I thought, right. and, and it couldn't have possibly been anything else. So what the hell were they watching? Yeah, yeah. So so I talked to Ken. Uh, uh, well, and like I was so irked by this that yeah, and like even when you know going to movies was a thing to do, I didn't do many. But as but uh, but not long after that, Glory came out, and I had to go see it just to have you know, yeah, to cleanse black yeah. black men fighting against the Confederacy just to cleanse what about that bad taste out of my mouth. Yeah. But but I mentioned so so Ken had the same same experience that I had with with the driving Miss Daisy, and his really astute observation was that I don't know if you, you, you ever saw this film, uh, but this is going to hook back to the help. Yeah. But 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 it's a film called. Uh, the Long Walk Home. Yeah, yeah, it's a great film, right? It's um, uh, it's a set in Montgomery on the eve of the bus boycott, and 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 and, and Sissy Spacek it is a thoroughly modern uh, Montgomery housewife, and and Whoopi Goldberg is her maid, and the and the narrative of the film is 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 about how Spacek winds up. Uh, um, on a trajectory that begins with her trying to sneak around to drive her maid to work to help her prepare for a big dinner party. And she eventually gets drawn into providing or, you know, to being part of the secret transportation service that was driving maids and stuff around. Uh, And Ken's comment was... Is this this Ken Warren or... Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, What was that? The Long Walk Home was the film that people who liked Miss Daisy thought they were watching what when they were watching Miss Daisy. Right. And I had the same reaction to the help. Yeah. Right. But it's like 25 years or so later, and we're farther and we're that much farther down like the neoliberal or the road of ne- of neoliberal ideological yeah. hegemony. Yeah. Right. So work doesn't even enter anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah. Work's not p- part of the equation. And but I mean the Django thing, I mean um I really did not want to see it. Um, right. you know, I didn't want to have to sit through it once, even. But like, but 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 there was also chatter right among the black intelligentsia, right. who who were trying to have it both ways in in a very specific way. And this is like the dynamic that often is what moves me to comment on the popular culture stuff, right? Because they kept hyping it as as a as a race or, or as carrying what's in effect a political message about race right like it's uplifting and as and as tarantino said himself you know it encourages it's inspiring for young black boys but even all young <laughs> young boys uh but then if anybody said anything critical about the film like the response was well but it's only entertainment Right. And I thought, okay, wait, no. Right. And that, by the way, and I know it's a different thing, but that's what prompted me to write. Uh, yeah, I mean, the other piece I know about that, that I've written that kind of broke the internet for a couple of minutes uh-huh. was, you know, was the Jenner 
Dolezal piece that I did in, in, in Common Dreams. And I've been watching the backlash against Dolezal for a week or two and trying to parse the arguments as they flew past me in you know, cyberspace. Uh, and what became clearer and clearer was that people who wanted to defend one but not the other were were caught, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and there's no way logically to do it. Yeah, I mean, the just, you know, I do think you know the, we're, we're off the beaten path, but I think this actually does connect right. to some of the stuff that I wanted to talk about, which is that I think um, a lot of this debate about race and that you take issue with is that the so-called anti-racists or people who are like critical of Dolezal, they themselves kind of, they want to treat race as this autonomous thing, if not biological. It's it's something, right? They don't want to say biology anymore, right? But it's something, right? It's something. Well, uh, uh, no, give them time. (laughs) It's making a comeback. It really is. Yeah. And COVID is helping it, by the way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And COVID. And I talked about this. um, Oh, 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 yeah. uh, The article that you covered for NAJ. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the trauma discourse does too, yeah, right? Right. 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 I've been here for more than you know, fifteen years now. First, you know, in, you know, in those kind of wacky black, black, black national circles, but coming closer and closer to the mainstream, the argument that the trauma of of slavery, right? What I mean, they yeah. they they think that this is the door that the popularization of 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 the epigenetic right determination, yeah. right up. Uh, of a of a you know of a new growth and evolution um does like i what i tend to think of it as what as a research as a return of lamarckianism right yeah. but but they they they've taken this idea that the trauma um of the slavery experience somehow works its way right into our dna literally dna right right um so yeah, it's on the way back. Yeah, but uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, and I, I feel like yeah, the quantitative stuff kind of tends towards this. You know, yes, what it does. Talking about is reification. Um, right, right, absolutely. I want to get there. I want to get there because I do think this. I want to address. I think that's a good way to get into this discussion. A lot of people accuse you of class essentialism, class determinism. Right. I want right. to get there, but before we get there, okay, just sure. kind of flesh out. You know what the book is about, um, mm-hmm. because you are trying to depict sort of the everyday reality of race under Jim Crow, in which it is very real, but at the same time, you were kind of saying it, it isn't as rigid and as, as abstract as people right. depicted it. So, for instance, you have an example of um, early on you were caught by caught stealing, shoplifting mm-hmm. as a kid, but right. the store owners were white, so at first you thought, oh, is this going to be like the end of, my, end of me? Right. But it turns right. out they, A, they were Italian, so they faced mm-hmm. more discrimination, there's, so there's layers to this. But B, you know, they treated you, even if they had some abstract commitment to segregation, they just like mm-hmm. a human being and they were able to treat you like a human being. Right. Um, and there's lots of examples of that, like people helping with each other's cars and just like, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, there's anecdotes of you take a bus ride from Arkansas to Louisiana. You're like scared the whole time about what could happen right. with, the, with Klansmen, get on the bus and so on. Yep. So it's a mixture, and um, I wonder, like, what is the? So I don't, I don't think the takeaway is like, is it good or bad? It's more, you know, mm-hmm. different. There's a different kind of argument you're trying to make about how this operated. Do you want to kind of flesh that out? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll try. Um, it's a really good, good question, and like a good opportunity. I just, I just wonder if I'm up to it. Uh, yeah, I think it's like this. I mean, so if you start out with. Um, uh, you know, something else that 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 I just wrote out what I mentioned in, in like talking about the 
um, uh, about the reparation stuff, right? That one of one, one of the responses that I got back at the beginning of the century when this stuff started to pop up, um, you know, outside the nationalist warrens. Um, and my first response was always, well, I mean, how do you imagine fashioning a political alliance that could prevail on this issue, given who gets what at the end of it and who doesn't, right? right? But the most likely response that I got to that was always, um, don't you think black people deserve something? Right. And I thought, well, yeah, that's that's probably not the healthiest way to look at stuff, right? <laughs> I don't think because uh, the reparative justice is like problematic in a whole lot of ways, yeah. right? Um, but, 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 but I can't answer that question because a lot of people deserve a lot of stuff, right? And 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 in recent years, I've um, I've often mentioned, uh, you know, the upwards of twenty thousand Irish immigrants who died and were buried in the. New Basin Canal that was dug in New Orleans in the 1830s also ran a couple of blocks away from my house. Uh, okay. So, yeah. And what well, I mean, God, and I mean, God forbid, you know, I mean, Native Americans, Chinese immigrants, right? I mean, the list, but, but Italians, I mean, that's, yeah. And, and, and like everybody who worked for a capitalist um, em, employer ultimately, yeah. right? Until, you know, 1935 at a minimum, yeah. right? Um, so, so, like in that sense, um, um, I think like I mean, oh I, I, yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. But like yeah, the, right. What do these anecdotes add up to you? It's not right. About, what because I was yeah. just, just I think I was reading and I was thinking like a, a critic of yours would say like you're making it sound too nice. You're you're making it too rosy. And, oh, but right. point, oh, oh, yeah, I'm cool. I don't think your point yeah. was it's rosy or not rosy. I think it was another right. point about the practical reality. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And in where I was going, and that's where I was going with the, you know, with the shaggy dog tail, right, about reparations. Yeah. <clears throat> but, is that so? If, if if you start out from the understanding that you're in a hierarchical system, right, but but you're in a class society, and class power, class rule, uh, is displayed and enacted in a lot of different ways along woven along a continuum from something that looks like open um, liberal democracy or or pluralism when 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 class power is absolutely I mean hegemonic the stuff that looks a lot more brutal and 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 um dangerous pardon me what when there's contestation basically is what was how the rules go um so in that sense I mean, like if you look at the Jim Crow world as at, 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 as the artifact of a social order, yeah. right, um, in, in which the governing class had experienced what they perceived to be a challenge, even though, you know, those of us standing on the outside wouldn't necessarily have, have seen it as, at, at, as a particularly dangerous challenge. Yeah. And they moved, uh, you know, to reassert their authority and they impose a system on everybody. They impose it on whites and blacks alike, right? Because it's not like you know white people had a meeting around the campfire and said, "I know what, let's go, you know, put some Jim Crow on black people," right? Um, so, I mean, that's so. So that was the reality of the system, and I think, and I fully an- anticipated um, paint, uh, the painting a too rosy picture. Uh, I mean, criticism 
and, and it's only natural because the alternative or what people are familiar with is is the well, well it's not even the opposite picture because I'm not painting a rosy picture damn it yeah, um, yeah. But, but 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 it's a um, it, it, it's 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 a picture of, of a relentless brutalization by all white people against all black people right and that's just not the way the social order was or is for that matter and it doesn't and frankly um you know the only people whom it helps to think about the order in in that way were you know the architects of of late 19th century what white supremacy who imposed the ideology self-consciously and explained why they were imposing it right and 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 are the neoliberal anti-racist today who want to make class and political economy in invisible in exactly the same ways and for exactly the same reasons that the you know that the minions of the ruling class in the late 19th century did right yeah there's a certain irony that in criticizing the order they kind of basically are complicit with the spokesman of the order, right? Right. Interpreting uh, it as so binary. Yeah, no, oh uh, uh, yeah, it's quite striking, man. Like I, uh, yeah, I mean, I watched that up close and personal during the monuments or the last stages like of the monuments fight, uh, you know, when I was in New Orleans. And I mean, the way that the, that the, um, um, you know, the black activist opposition, the Take Them Down NOLA coalition talked about uh, um, that 19th century of monuments to white supremacy, what was that there's an unbroken arc, right? I mean, right. right? So that none of the stuff that that happens, right? I mean, n- none of the interventions, right, of the mid 1960s mattered somehow. Nor did like the emergence of this dominant black political class matter. And 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 I think I finally, within the last month, have have been able to figure out how that works for them. And it's kind of stupid. It took me so long to figure it out because it's been there. That's what well, the pieces have been laying there. But it's that, um, and actually, well, I have a graduate student to credit for this. Ultimately, uh, like a couple of years before I retired, I put in a, um, and you may have heard me mention this on a podcast or something too. But I put in um, a, um, a Black American political thought grad grad course. It was really like a, a bibliography course. It was massive readings and like students led uh, you know the readings every week and and one student is a first year student is a political philosophy type um led the readings on a or led the discussion on a mass of readings from the mid 30s to the mid 40s and she began by uh, remarking that what surprised her about all those readings was that nobody said anything about a need to combat racism right that it was all targeted to, to um, you know, specific programs and policies that they wanted to fight for and ones they wanted to fight against. And so, you know, you know, I thought that was a really important observation, but it still took me a couple of years like to think through the, uh, the full implications of it. And I mean, here's the deal. So once you posit that racism or white supremacy or anti-blackness is is the ultimate source of all apparent inequalities that affect black people in a negative way then if if that's the enemy well then, then it's true 
because by definition, you can't defeat that that enemy. It's like terrorism. You can't defeat it because it's an idea, right? Uh, and, and But if the standard that you assume is that we can only be free or emancipated, if you know once the demon is defeated, well, the demon can't can't be defeated, so we can never be free, free, free or emancipated. It's um, you know sometimes in my less charitable moments, I've described this as a as a kind of um, pessimistic view view of the world that only people whose material lives have been quite happily pacified can can afford to luxuriate in. Right. Right. Uh, and it's true, right? Um, but but it's also part of a class class program itself because it uh, because it amounts to a demand that nothing, no intervention that has the potential to improve the material conditions of the great mass of working black people, along with, by the way, the great mass of working non-black people, counts for anything, right? Because it doesn't attack the real enemy, and the real enemy is abstract racism, you know, uh, um, yeah. white supremacy, anti-blackness. Yeah. And, and, and like just one more loop on that, yeah. um, you know, defining that as the real enemy works, um, works well um, in another way, because it, uh, because that's what makes it possible to posit uh, an undifferentiated black population Right, such that, or, or really, yeah, or a monadic black what a black population with like a hive mind, right, a hive existence. So then, therefore, um, you know, an Oscar for Will Smith is is a payoff. Uh, um, I mean, for me, even if I'm unemployed, yeah, right, right, yeah. And it's bizarre. I was reading um, this exchange on, you know, I'll just say, like the New York Times with um, like Roxanne Gay and Charles Blow talking about the Chris Rock. Will Smith thing, and they were just talking about like, you know, Jada Pinkett Smith represents all black women, and like Will Smith represents all black men, and it's, it was like a bizarre, like, yeah. But it's so natural now, and I think having read your work it, now, it strikes me as weird. But it's so natural <laughs> to talk this way, and I wonder, like, I don't know. I, I was actually kind of wondering, like, did Obama like kind of lead to a spike in this kind of way of talking about every every person embodies a whole race, kind of kind of thing? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, um. I'd like to blame it on Obama. Uh, uh, um, yeah, I'd like to blame my diabetes on Obama, frankly, or like anything else. But 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 I do blame that on Gingrich. But 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 uh, um, um, that's also a really interesting and, and and I think as well a really important question because the tendency has 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 been there, right? Right. The tendency has been there um, at the foundation of post-war racial uh, and liberalism, but. But but it's really like the kernel of race relations discourse that took shape at, at the same moment that Jim Crow was taking shape, right? And for kind of the same reasons, right? I mean, Michael R. West's book, and West was a field, field student too, uh, and, you know, the education of Booker T. Washington is really great on this. And he argues that so, it, you know, from whatever you want to start, start counting until 1865, what with the Negro question in, in American life, what was about slavery? Well, after, 19, after 1865, the Negro question was no longer about slavery. So what is it? And you had a 30-year period there, uh, I mean, during which um, the, 
the essential fact or the legal fact anyway of black citizenship had been established and you had like 30 years of once again practical pragmatic everyday contestation over what that was going to mean in concrete terms and that was also given the place of blacks in the southern political economy that was also a 30-year period of contestation over what the reconstruction of the south and the southern political economy was going to be like and and it was pretty clear you know that the planters wanted to devise a system again pragmatically that whatever it was called would be as close to slavery as possible right and the freed people you know of course what wanted to get as far away from slavery as possible so that's like the basic confrontation um after the defeat of the populist in, insurgency uh and and the white supremacist order is is imposed well then the question of well what does the status of blacks as citizens mean if we uh have abrogated the 14th amendment you know, and and the 15th amendment and and michael west's argument is brilliant because he says okay so booker t washington emerges as the apostle of this new notion of race relations so that such as blacks i mean disappear as as individuals or as citizens or or as any kind of identity right you know students teachers lawyers or ditch diggers farmers right, right, yeah. right? Uh, shipbuilders whatever and they exist only in, in their racial identity right and whites presumably do also but like the citizenship isn't so much a problem for them uh, and and among other things um race relations are mediated right by um by the you know but by, by the good offices of race spokespersons uh, and this is the same moment when we see the social category of of you know race men and and race women um emerging and Judith Stein points out to to in her great book uh, on uh, Garvey um that 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 this social stratum of black people that was emerging here in the decade or so on either side of the first world war <clears throat> was parallel to comparable strata that were emerging in the british uh, you know west indies and in british west africa and, and that's where you know we get pan-africanism and all the rest of that and that's ultimately so i mean that's the ultimate foundation right of what of of what gives us a world in which Charles Blow and who was the other one? Roxanne Gay. Oh wow, God help us! <laughs> but, uh, you know, get to bloviate about what what black people want, need, think, yeah. th- think, or whatever. So, and what you've been, what you've described is, I think you've elsewhere called kind of like neoliberal race politics, race mm-hmm. class, and so on. And right. I think there's like at least two versions of this. Um, one is what you've kind of described, which I would kind of consider like a cynical version, like the people with class interests and in promoting mm-hmm. this and so on. But, you know, this is a very dominant way of thinking about the world among people who aren't prominent elites, who aren't right. even but, yeah. interested in this. And it's right. And like, I think there's a lot of people who would have, who wanted to vote for Bernie and believe in economic right. justice and so on and so forth. Right. But also really find this way of talking about race very appealing. Right. So I'm, I'm like wondering, like in a non-cynical way, what is the appeal of this way of thinking about the world? Uh, well, one thing is that it's familiar, 
right? Uh, so like you, so, so we can't really uh, I mean, underestimate, or we shouldn't really like underestimate the significance of hegemony, right? Because that's how we think about it. And and frankly, right in the seventy-five plus years now um, since the end of World World War II, and, and the social scientists have been right on the vanguard, right? I mean, they've what I mean, they've been at the Leninist vanguard of making class in class and political economy invisible in American life and turning us into um, cellular pieces of a group, right? Or like different groups. That's what pluralism is. Yeah. Right. Um, well, then something else that I've got that, that I've been working on is overdue. Um, in uh, discussing the Moynihan report, for instance, like yeah. uh, what I know. Report on black culture, right. Creating the idea. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, when uh, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and by the way, when I went to New York about a couple of weeks ago for an interview, I, I, I mean, I knew it was coming, but this was the first time that I'd really um, gotten off the train in the, in, in the complete new Moynihan Hall, and it just pissed me off. Uh, just to, oh, it's not, uh, now named after him? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But, but, um, 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 yeah, I think it's in the old, uh, uh, what was, I believe, an old postal sorting right, I mean, yeah, facility yeah, across yeah, the street yeah. from Penn, Penn Station. Station. Yeah. Wow. But um, but anyway, um, yeah, so the Moynihan uh, the report was a document that uh, Moynihan, when he was a, assistant secretary of the Labor Department, uh, you wrote for the Johnson administration about the war, war on poverty or around the war on poverty. Uh, and it, it was called the Negro Family, the case for action, right? Right. And 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 it's been the source of both justified and you know, more justified and less I mean, justified controversy over the decades since then. Um, I mean, one of the um, uh, the unjustified um, controversies about it, which tickled me from the very beginning. What well, well, was that? The argument that Black that Moynihan made about cultural pathology among Black Americans was basically the same argument that Black nationalists were making about cultural pathology among Black Americans. Yeah. But but they had to argue that it wasn't right because right. Uh, and I mean, just like for instance, people have defended Kenneth Clark's Dark Ghetto that was published the same year as at as the Moynihan report. What while they've Right. Uh, they've um, accepted or, or or they've praised Clark, right. but criticized Moynihan for saying the same thing. Right. To to the extent that Moynihan even quotes Clark, but but the one difference is that Moynihan says, "Well, there's racism that has some, something to do with it, but there's all this other stuff." Uh, where Clark says, and, and the punchline is racism. But right. that and the fact that one's black and like the other one's not right. are the only differences. But the reason I mentioned the Moynihan report is that he gives the game away even before the text, uh, because in the introduction, he says that in America nowadays, we reckon inequality, not um, among you know, individuals, but but between ethnic groups, right? And in this, he he uh, followed you know, Oscar Handlin, who in a 1949 commentary article. So it's not like the New Deal was a distant memory at that point. He, he um, gave an account of political mobility in in American life that I don't even think think mentions 
Roosevelt or like the New Deal or the CIO yeah. once. Like it's all like the just so stories about groups. So, so I mean, that's to say that, and then like, uh, I mean, sociologists, right, as you know, have been re- reinventing class as a category of, uh, of culture, right. right, since the 40s, right, right? And, and God knows, right, 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 I mean, political scientists and economists, right, right for God's sake. Yeah. So, so this is a hegemonic way of thinking about stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and, and it's become increasingly so um, since Reaganism. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I yeah. Think it's intuitive. It's you say like this is the, it's the this is a morality story about white versus black people. That's easier to see than you know this is a social structure with you know social relations right. that you can't see. You know. Right. Than, than, well, oh no, totally, totally. Yeah. And look, um, but I mean, feels uh, you also made this point uh, often in her teaching too that that even the differences you can see uh-huh. right. are kind of tricky because you can see them because you're accustomed to to filtering perception in a way that highlights those 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 differences right but she's often pointed out that look human beings vary in like an almost infinite number of ways right you know, skin color and hair texture right. are only a couple of them right and they don't even work very well right yeah. right yeah, for what yeah. they're supposed to do you have a chapter on passing that gets into it um and i think this would be a good time to address um, a criticism that you've probably heard a lot, which is, and you know, I saw, I saw this in sort of the more public writing about you, the, of class mm-hmm. reductionism, class essentialism. Right. Um, uh, I would. We don't have to go into detail, but I would, for readers interested, you know, I'd point out there is an exchange, an academic exchange uh, from 2002 between yourself and Ellen mm-hmm. Miskins Wood, a kind of prominent Canadian Marxist political philosopher, um, who. You know, it's very interesting to read, and she gives this broad mm-hmm. history of capitalism. But she, I think, could be accused of, and she pretty much says this in this account, in this debate, that of mm-hmm. kind of being a little economistic. Right. Um, so you give this account about how race and capitalism and class um, are very intrinsically related um, historically. Ellen Mason's Wood says, yeah, but and we can also separate class and race because there are places mm-hmm. in the world where you have capitalism but no racism. Mm-hmm. And to which, you know, you're not a big fan of this. But it's, I think it's kind of funny because right. a lot of the people who get angry at your stuff basically accuse you right. of what Wood was saying, of right. separating race and class or prioritizing class right. over race and so on and so forth. Um, so I, don't know, I guess I would kind of want to hear from your mind. Yeah, okay. How, oh, yeah. how would you respond to the class reductionism? Yeah, yeah, good. Good, thank you. Well, I'll tell you one thing about it is, right, and like this is really tiresome, especially as I said to a buddy of mine this morning, when you kind of look at the hourglass and 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 see there's more sand at the bottom than there is at the top, right? It gets kind of tiresome, but right, we have to deal with that certain kind of argument. But so it's good to have an opportunity, right? Uh, just to make some blanket statements about it. Um. Well, well, first of all, right? Like on the surface level, right? There's a tendency, you know, as you well know, like an academic debate and also barbershop debate, but. <laughs> But 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 they have more clever ways of doing it, like an academic debate, to turn the argument that your antagonist is making into the argument that you want your antagonist to be making, because it's the easier one for you to refute, right? Um, and that's what people do, right? So, and there's also it just feels like, and this could be partly an old man's rant, and even worse, the rant of an old man who cut his teeth on the Frankfurt School and his yeah. mid. Well, well, in his mid twenties, but 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 it just feels like 
ability to read uh, critically has been on a sharp decline. And I trace that to political economy of higher education uh, and a bunch of other stuff, right? But that's a problem, right? Um, and and also in a, in a way that some that that might strike some uh, I mean listeners as odd um to the to the decline of of a serious institutional left like in the US because yeah because uh, that means that, that that there are no more stakes no more pragmatic stakes that attach to arguments anymore so people just get to say what the fuck they want to say on the internet right uh, basically um and that's also kind of ironic because one of the ways that I got sort of blasted as a bomb thrower early in my career is that, I mean, you know, I came out of Leninist politics and polemics and like, I didn't, uh, yeah, I mean, I knew how to do niceties, but I just didn't often think that the niceties ought to um, bury like, the sharpness of a point. Yeah. And there's another little a lot of autobiographical excursion I might make in a second, but I'll come back to it. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll come back to it if you remind me, but, but, um, um, but anyway, I mean, that said, um, so I don't think of capitalism as existing only at the point of production or or only in in the labor relation. Right. And just as I've said, 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 said in that exchange with Ellen, it, like, I don't think people set out to make capitalism. Right. I, mean, I don't even think they set out to make capitalism in Russia in 1991, <laughs> right? Right. right? They set out to do stuff, and capitalism is the byproduct, right? It 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 is institutional and and intellectual byproduct, but ideational byproduct of the pragmatic stuff that, stuff that that they're trying to do, right? And and if that was true in, in 1991, when everybody knew what capitalism was and had become, uh, then it was certainly true in like. 1650 right. right or 1750 or 1850 right um so class so so capitalism is on one level um you know a, a hierarchical class society right just like feudalism right. was and and what i've noticed from study and you know and being alive and paying attention right that um that Social orders and hierarchical ones, but in particular, um, don't um, sustain themselves. Right? Don't persist just on the basis of coercion. Right. 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 So, so the cultural domain, right, um, is a domain in in which, among other things, common sense understandings that sort of anchor and 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 uh, and justify um you know the existence of things as they are is important and one of those um domains within the cultural sphere well one of the most important ones is um a species or a genus of 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 um of ascriptive ideologies that is one of ideologies that sort of <clears throat> construct uh, and sort people into populations on the basis of characteristics that they supposedly share, the, 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 and I have to be clear, that are Im, imputed to them, right? Right. Instead of what they actually do, right. Um, and um, I got, uh, and, and that notion of 
of ascriptive inequality is is the one that was sparked in my head by my colleague Roger Smith okay. uh, in his book Civic Ideals. Um, you know, well, it came out in in the late '90s and the work that he was doing around then. And I hadn't seen him in a while, and uh, and uh, and uh, we had a great time at the Sixers game right uh, last night, actually. Uh, oh, but but uh, them, yeah, uh, man, I lost on a weird call, man. Like a about like, an overturned goaltending yeah. call when time was running out. I think yeah, I, I was. But like, I think the problem was that uh, the Rivers, like they were, yeah, they've been playing well. Yeah. But but I think they left, and and Rogers said this first last night too. But they left um, both Embiid and Harden. Yeah, on the bench for too long going into the fourth quarter. Are you a? Uh, we'll get back to the race discussion in a second. Are you a fan of the Harden trade? Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, yeah, both on both sides of the equation for Brooklyn as well. Oh, you can get rid of Ben Simmons. Yeah. Right. Right. So, 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 I mean, that was a case of 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 addition by addition and and addition by subtraction. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Back to the. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Descriptive differences. Um, right. So and and what they do really is they and and it's kind of funny. Uh, what because this is like another. Um, facet of the tension between me and Ellen, because uh, what they do is um, is they give everybody like a naturalized understanding of 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 the uh, propriety of the social order and the existing hierarchy, because everybody's where they're supposed to be, right. and, and that's what those just so stories did, just like they did for Kipling, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. But 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 uh, uh, see, it also makes it kind of funny, well, with the narrative that capitalism is unique right right i mean in that uh its discourse of of the legitimation uh is more influenced by the enlightenment or by the principles of the enlightenment say than the feudal or pre-capitalist right i mean discourses of of the, of of the legitimation and my response to that is uh that that's that what well, that's romantic and uh, and you know, self flattering bullshit, right? right. All you know, all hierarchical societies work that way, right? Yeah, and so you know, and you wrote this in another piece in New Labor Forum, where you kind of basically define capitalism as, or your your view of it as, you know, relations of production, modes of production. Okay, we get mm-hmm. all this, but then you also added pragmatic ideologies, right? That keep mm-hmm. going, and that's where you locate this thing called descriptive differences. So that right. would be like racial, but also gender, sex, also communal, gender, past, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or f- feeble-mindedness and and look, Serbs Serbs imagine that they could tell the difference between you know themselves and Croatians. Right. When the only difference I can see is one goes like this <laughs> and the other goes, well, what goes like <laughs> that? And, and, yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, uh, and and the same thing with Tutsis and Hutus, right? So yeah. so so to across the world, but um. But, but obviously it's not a primordialist thing either. And what what I think for for uh, I mean, listeners who are who would like to pursue these questions in a more I mean systematic way, I, I what I strongly re- recommend the, the work of Rogers Brubaker, the sociologist who's really good on this stuff. Um, so yeah, so so race from that perspective is one of many coexisting discourses that do that kind of work. Yeah. And in fact, it's that that have done that kind of work in in British North America and and in the U.S. Yeah. Right. Um, 
and and they change over time, right? The content changes, the meaning changes, right? Um, right. So, like, so, 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 so it's always a pragmatic issue, right? And like what what African meant in eighteen hundreds is different than the twenty first right. century, and so on. And, right. Totally. And you know, this comes up a lot in academic debates. I don't know if anyone actually believes this, but you'll hear this. Uh, well, this is actually the premise of you know Cedric Robinson's book, right? That racism predates capitalism, so in a sense, is more right. fundamental. And right. I would, I, what I would say is like no one is denying that people saw differences before capitalism. It's just that right. under capitalism it took on a new it took on a new function, you know. And obviously right. slavery predates capitalism, but well, yes, yes, right. right. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and and look, I mean, people have been really confused uh, in a lot of ways over like the ethnocentrism thing, too. Right. I mean. Yeah, I mean, all this stuff is is a much more fluid. But the problem with with like ethnocentrism uh, is it's it it's idealist in a really interesting way. I mean, both the notion that that the existence of of a differentiation between you know my group and that group, which as you know in small scale societies is like often a difference between what's understood to be people and what's understood to be some other category. Yeah. Um, but, but, but the claim that this is like a part of human nature that can't be contained and it's, and all the primordialist stuff uh, is, is poppycock, right? Right. right? I mean, ultimately. And the idea that you could have racism before race <laughs> uh, sub pod, on some podcast, if you, months ago, maybe a year or so ago, um, I noticed that somebody uh, wrote in the chat, does a professor read, uh, you know, Cedric Robinson's work? And I just said, right in mid-sentence, I said, yeah, I know it, but but it doesn't matter, right? Because I never got anything out of it. Yeah. And yeah. But anyway. Yeah, um, it's, it's become, it's interesting as we kind of have taken on a new life. Um, well, yeah, and, and it's part of a... Um, and, as a product of a you know, of a propaganda campaign, yeah. right, uh, right, uh, in the same way that that the you know that the third life, I mean, discovery of C.L.R. James was was part of an overlapping, actually, mm-hmm. uh, but academic propaganda campaign, yeah, right, to create like a um, a venerated black left. Not Marxist scholar, basically. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, w- I was also thinking it would might be fun to do this, where to ask you, like, what would you, how would you respond to? I think very common, common things you, I've heard. You know, people mm-hmm. say, like classes doesn't matter compared to race. Uh, and I remember this very right. clearly in twenty. I had to look this up to remember, but I remember you know I was on Facebook a few years ago, and the tennis star James Blake gets arrested mm-hmm. by the police right. in New York, and I saw people right. on Facebook saying, "See, he's rich." Right. But he's still being targeted by the police. This proves that race right. class or not, you know. Right. Uh, well, like, how would you res- how would you respond to that? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I remember, like in the '80s, um, a similar thing happened with Yale's former black basketball star, who was the son of the founder of black of of the black enterprise. Um, I mean, magazine and Empire. Uh, Butch, uh, I mean, Butch Graves, the cops forced him to lie down prone on the platform in Metro North when he was on the way back to Scarsdale or Greenwich or yeah. wherever the hell it was he lived. So, so what I would say to that is there's no question that the black 
Yale alum stockbroker is 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 going to be more likely to be um, screwed with as, as fundamentally a case of mistaken identity than his white classmate in the same job on the same train at the same time would be. That doesn't mean that he's anywhere near as likely to have that as 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 part of routine or anticipated um, experience as a black, brown, Southeast Asian or nominally white person who lives in one of those areas, but I won't go by the zip code, but lives in an area that's been targeted for 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 stress policing, for containment of 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 people who who might in some way um, affront the sensibilities of people who own property. Yeah. Right. So and to that extent, um, you know, and that's why I refer to it as, you know, you know as what's in effect the case of mistaken identity, right? Where you um where police will uh, not look closely enough beneath the race cues to discern the class cues. And I mean, I remember, man, like in the early 70s, um, police departments were already sending or, or paying for cops to go to community college or to college, um, you know, to take sociology or Afro-American studies courses. And my friends and I used to joke that the whole point was to help them make class distinctions among black people that they weren't accustomed to making before. Right. Uh, but but that's not how it was rationalized exactly, yeah. right? But 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 that also comes comes back to the argument that I've made that that it makes sense to see race as a shorthand, right? For uh, that designates people who can be abused, basically, or, or right. Um, uh, uh, so, so, and I don't know. I mean, some people think that that might be you know, demeaning. Like I was on a. Um, I did a panel. I probably shouldn't say this. I'm going to say it anyway. Fuck it. Um, but I was on a panel with um, uh, uh, that was put on by the Ohio uh, Justice Dems uh, in 2020 um, that was organized by a really great guy who's a lawyer out there, former Penn student. Um, and I was on with like three congressional candidates, one of whom was Cori Bush, and she was really impressive. In our opening comments, I said something about um, class distinctions. And like this guy pounced on it Im- immediately. And he's a big dude. But, 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 but I think he said he's, he self-described as six, eight and being more than 300 pounds. Uh, and he like went, went on a, um, a um, an extended um, soliloquy basically about how he can't accept the idea that there are any class distinctions among black people when all black people are, are equally subject to being killed by the police. Yeah. And, and I thought, okay, well, this is an important moment here, right? Right, Because light bulb just, just clicked. The work that that does, right, is like being able to say that all black people are equally yeah. subject to, to being victimized. And what's the worst, what's, what, what's the more extreme um, victimization of being killed by police? Yeah. And for that reason, closing the racial wealth gap that exists between the richest 10% of black people and the richest 10% of white people is, is 
it is the paramount agenda for the race. So, I mean, you see how, yeah, uh, yeah, the logic doesn't work as logic. But but the logic works as ideology, yeah. And especially coming with constant but I mean, repetition, like uh, I mean, Joanne Reed, um, I'll never forget, said to Trevor Noah, like in 2018, I think, uh, when, when she was you know, disparaging Sanders two years after the fact, and she pointed out that you know black people don't care about free public higher education or like medicare for all right what what black people want is a reckoning and right um yeah and you know that's you know that's just a class program that's all it is you can't describe it as anything else it's a class program that's dressed up as a race program and and lo and behold as is but like especially if you take you know race and ethnicity and and, and a nation as synonyms for the same thing um, turns out race politics has really always been a class politics, just as, you know, that's why we call it bourgeois nationalism. Right, basically. exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's right. a black nationalist project. Um, can we do one last question then? Sure. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is, you know, the, yeah, thinking about like comparability or connection, that you've mm-hmm. kind of done a lot oh, yeah. of this work already, talking right. about descriptive difference as a thing that's quite universal. Mm-hmm. Um, and in your book, you also mention it, elsewhere you've mentioned, you know, what is the role of, um, Asian immigrants, Chinese immigrants in the 19th century coming into mm-hmm. Mississippi or coming right. into this racial order in California. Um, right. ha- have you thought about like, because I think what you presented is a very um, well thought out description of how the anti-black racial order develops in the South. And that is the kind of mm-hmm. this binary thing that kind of animates a lot of racial history in the U.S. Um, right. As your book ends in the 60s, or as you say, Jim Crow ends in the 60s, right, this is also the moment where immigration has kind of begun to change mm-hmm. the country. Um, right. I read somewhere recently that 80% of immigrants since the 80s are from Latin America or East Asia, mm, or wow. Asia, let's just say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was thinking about, like, well, what's the analogous way to think about racialization of, you know, like, my family's from Taiwan, like, East Asians or mm-hmm. South Asians? And I don't know if there's such a tiny way to connect these and, and to say, like, well, if black people are racialized this way, then Asians and Latin Americans are racialized. Like, I think that's a little difficult mm-hmm. as, as a right. formalist exercise. Um, right, right. Do you, have you, do you, like, how, how much is your thinking or how much have you thought about sort of the extension of your analysis to, like, different groups right. in U.S. history? Uh, oh, yeah, well, I've tried to, some, uh, and I've been guided by this partly by a former dissertation advisee of mine, Claire Claire, Claire Kim at Irvine. Right, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think, um, well, yeah, I mean, here's a way to think about it, um, that um, I'm blocking on a guy's name, again, Lee Benford, I think, uh, who's an anthropologist at Stony, no, at Staten Island, at the College of Staten Island, did a really nice book a few years ago called, I think today we're we're going to the fields. And it's a study of um, of a, a labor, uh, um, of a seasonal labor importation campaign or program in Southern Ontario, which apparently feeds like 80% of fruits and vegetables to Canada. Who knew? Yeah. Uh, but they have two programs. One is with Jamaica and the other is with a state in Mexico. And, and it's well, I mean, organized. People go back and forth, right? Uh, and, and it's administered by the three governments, right? It's like a guest worker program. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, yes, it's exactly a guest worker okay. program. All right. 
but one of the things that struck me about it was that growers have found a way to articulate racial differences between the Mexicans or what what well, what are in effect, right? And racial, cultural, racial, whatever. But uh, you know, distinctions between the Mexicans and the Jamaicans. Um, and one of them is the hoary one that was already there, right? Like, the, uh, but the Mexicans are better at at taking stuff out of the ground. The Jamaicans are better at taking stuff off the trees. Oh, um, that's really inventive. But but the other main one is that the Mexicans are more tractable, right? And what, and what doesn't factor into that racialized right, distinction is that there are no Mexicans in Ontario. Uh, um, right. uh, the only native Spanish speakers that there are in, in, in Ontario are like Cubans who are themselves as you know, likely as not going back and forth. Right. Um, but, they're, they're, but, but you can't shake a stick in any part of Ontario and not hit a Jamaican. Right, right. So, so, and of course, and of course, the Jamaicans are English speakers. Right, right. So their options, um, um, they have more options, not to feel compelled to to accept, you know, whatever conditions you know the employers want to hand out. But so while so like all such distinctions, this one is bogus. The extent to which it's imposed as a reality becomes something like, well, a self fulfilling prophecy. Right. right. So, 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 I mean, there's that kind of slotting going on. Um, there's a guy I know who, um, named Saket Sani, who ran uh, the New Orleans Labor Center for, um, for a number of years. And he had a great line um, in talking to American workers about, um, or the narrative that undocumented workers are taking their, 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 their jobs. And his, um, comment was no, they aren't taking your jobs. What's what's happening is, is that your employer is turning the job that you had like into something that only an an entirely degraded worker with no rights would be an eligible candidate for. So that also helps to think about it. Yeah. And I mean, the last little um, um, comment of that sort that I'll make is like uh, I'm working with a student at Penn now who who's been doing. A really great I mean, dissertation on racialization in, in 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 the formation and evolution of the copper mining industry in Arizona in in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and distinctions that emerge among different kind of Hispanics, right? Yeah. Um, um, and 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 also how you know, how how the dynamics of racialization and the characteristics that are imputed vary from site to site and from location to location based on the character of the industry. Um, But anyway, so I would say, look, I mean, this is probably the last thing I say about this is that, um, that I really do see this as like a global process, right? I mean, um, and, and at one point, like I compared it in my mind to like a global version of the sharecrop system where like I, yeah, I talk to cab drivers a lot. And 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 years ago in Chicago, I was talking to this guy uh, who's from Bangladesh, and you know, I asked him how he came to be in Chicago. And of course, ultimately, the answer is always the same. I had a cousin who was there, but 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 but, but he said first, like labor recruiters came through his village, 
bunch of guys who were a little older than he was, uh, he went with them to Japan. Uh, then he went to Japan. Well, when he got a little bit older, he was there for six or seven years. He, he went back to Bangladesh and he went to London for a while. And then I can't remember whether he went back to Bangladesh before he came to Chicago. But like, that's everybody's story. Yeah. Right. And I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like watching the daily news, right? It's like the only thing that varies is like the body count, right? Or what, I mean, or the particulars, right? Uh, uh, but the basic dynamic is like I mean, always the same. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, and I, I, mean, I wouldn't say that I'm the most um, cosmopolitan world, world, world traveler, but the thing that I will say it, is that every place that I've been, uh, well, what I've noticed it is that most people are scuffling trying to work for a living, right? Right, and it doesn't matter, right? Right, what kind of food they eat or the music that they listen to. I mean, that's all kind of interesting, right? And more or less, but the basic human condition is is that, yeah. right? Yeah, and so you know, I think oh, one way maybe summarize what you're saying is you know a lot of this racial categorization, not just of the black experience, but like of all these groups is sort of a, an attempt to naturalize one's social position. Exactly. No, like, yeah. Bingo. That's it's not, it. It's not about your class. It's about your race. Um, right. And that story you told about Mexican and Jamaican guest workers is basically similar to what Field says um, with slavery, mm-hmm. which is to say that you know, they were white, not slaves, but indentured servants. And there, right. there were African ones. And just because one had a connection, um, right. meaning the white ones had a connection back to England, just like the mm-hmm. daddy ones in Canada, they were able to kind of escape the worst situation. And that's why we wind up right. with an Africaniza- Africanization of the unfree workforce. And and then, you know, this gets into the discussion of all, you know, and I think it's not a controversial position, but it kind of is for a lot of people, right? Like slavery came, comes before race as ra- and racism. Right, and yeah. Well, it's a hard pill for people to swallow. It really is. But I mean, um, but it's what... And Fields also uses this quote, which I think is great, um, um, from E.P. Thompson, right, right, like on on the need to avoid the, the um, condescension of posterity. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, I I, I was I was mentioning this to Merlin actually the other day. You know, when I teach that Fields essay, I notice you know my students don't exactly pick up on everything in the readings. Right. But they always pick up on this fact that there was English indentured servants. Like these are largely white students, and uh, that always struck yeah. me as. I mean, Merlin made this joke, like, well, everyone wants their own 1619. Like, the white students also feel like they were, you know, they have their own trauma, you know. Yeah. Uh, but also to your point, I think you made, you know, at the beginning of the podcast that, you know, how do you want to characterize slavery in a way that actually gets everyone feel invested in it if it's mm-hmm. just about one exceptional experience by one group right. that everyone should just feel ashamed about? Or is right. it about, you know, this one group experienced the worst version of something that a lot of people experienced? Right. But right. No, it was a lot more politically um, capacious, right? Oh, yeah, totally, totally. And and and, and in my last book reference, uh, there's a legal historian at Buffalo named Robert Steinfeld, exactly. who's done really great work, work on where, the, you know, where the free labor idea came from. And, and I mean, the key point, as you know, is that like in the first book, he 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 um he um he says you know people you know understandably ask how chattel slavery could exist in a country like the United States or whatever and, and he says but 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 if you look historically and not just the ancient history right but the fact is that until well into the 19th century most labor was bound right. in some way or another yeah so so the anomaly like isn't right. slavery 
it, it's a where the modern notion of free labor came yeah, from. I don't think technically even in England, free labor didn't exist until 1900 it, by our yeah. standards, right? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sorry, one last question, because I think yep. this is a natural one, is that, you know, I think what allows you to think about this stuff globally is your materialist kind of Marxist framework. And mm-hmm. one thing I'm always curious about asking others, um, other scholars who have, you know, gone down this kind of trajectory is, you know, if you, if you, like, how did, where did it come from? And, you know, reading mm-hmm. your book, you talk about this kind of as a young man, you're very angry and outraged at the racism you experience. I'm sure right. you were tempted to, at some point, kind of come up with a worldview that, as you call it, is race reductionist, is like race first, sure. classes, secondary, and so on. Do you recall, like, um, you know, a moment or a period where you kind of began to discover a different way of thinking about this through like social structural analysis? Yeah. Uh, yeah, in fact, I do. I, I, and, and and yeah, I mean, like I came into the movement like in the Black Power era at the beginning of what of the Black Power era. But really the most formative experience to me was like my natal household was like red tilted. Okay. So. Okay. Um, so you grew up with so, like... Your parents are you like your family? They're all like in parties and such. Well, uh, 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 my father either had been or 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 was on the edges of the CP, uh, okay. and my mother was you know devout Catholic, but she was you know, insofar as she inclined, she inclined toward Catholic toward the Catholic work. I mean Catholicism, but but like um, uh, like for instance, um, uh, it was my mother who kept me home from school to watch um, some of the McCarthy hearings and and the news about the Rosenbergs. Uh, and family friends were in that orbit also. So it's not like... And I mean, I do recall my dad often saying that um, in a response, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, the orthodoxy like through through the 50s about, um, what, about, uh, um, about Jim Crow was that it represented the accession to power of the white working class right in the South. Uh, and that's who was really racist. <clears throat> and my dad would often say, just kind of laughing, he'd say, gee, you think that if the white workers really came to power, they want to get something for themselves, right? It wouldn't yeah. just be about beating up on black people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, um, so no, there was no epiphany, really. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, no, I just inherited the family business, basically. Yeah. So uh, was there a moment where you're kind of tempted to go in more of a black nationalist direction? Or- oh, Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I was like 1920, and, and I had a Trotskyist flirtation with the SWP for about a year. Um, and, and I was I was uh, near the organizer of the youth group, like in North Carolina, and it 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 was a direct function of the fact that the SWP was um, it was opportunist about race in, in the way that it was that it yeah. that, that 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 it offered people like me, a way to be a Marxist and a black nationalist at right. the same time. Yeah, uh, I mean, how do you, what do you feel is like the role of like a, a, a group that is maybe like pragmatically organized, um, loosely organized around ethnicity and race, even if the, the, the sort of like horizon would be something universal and, you know, like saying having socialist <laughs> politics, but you know, like this podcast, yeah. for instance, is like three Asian podcasts yeah. on the assumption that, you know, our conversations will be different than if we talk to, um, yeah. you know, our usual room of like white leftists and, and one of us, you know? Right. Oh yeah. Oh uh, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, um, yeah, like, the, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, Jason Miles and Pascal Robert's podcast is kind of interesting that way too. I mean, um, at, at this point, I think that, or, and this is just a hunch really, 
but that um, in all of the of the um, of the racially or ethnically defined um, you know, streams of political discourse that are, that that are left of center, um, that um, you know, before long, um, you know, at least we're going to find that. Um, that, that the class perspectives and concerns of the professional managerial strata or, or the ones who are, well, for the interests that are likely to benefit from the political economy of race relations yeah. are, are going to come to dominate. I mean, what makes a lot of sense to me, um, and I think this is what I do every day, even when I get in the cab or whatever, it, it is, uh, is the project of fishing for a potential cadre. Right. So it's like, you know, for for 15 years now, probably like I've been like um, a party functionary with no party. Right. Yeah. Um, but but like, um, yeah, look like we need to start trying to build a real a real um, working class based political movement and cultivate a particular kind of working class consciousness. And and one of the nice things about there being absolutely nothing at all that's like a real left in the U.S. is that um, that, that the field is completely open, so that you don't have to. Well, and I often say this: like, what with the fact that there is no left that has any capacity to do anything, means you don't have to follow the news slavishly. I don't have to have a position on the war in Ukraine. Yeah, right. Right, but but because right, if I had, it wouldn't matter. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. But, but there's that. So 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 it's a nice buttress against the temptation to what a buddy of mine called has called resolutionary socialism. Uh, <laughs> but it's also but it offers opportunities, right? Because a lot of different ki- kinds of intellectual practice can be part of movement building. Like yeah. like I think our podcast, I think your podcast, right, right can be part of a movement building project. What I'm like, what I'm like that, and, and that's like the good news within the bad news. The bad news side of it is right. that that stuff is at such a low level now that almost any intervention that's serious can help. Right, um, and, and so it's just for us to make them. Yeah, the bar is low. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's we can end on the half pessimistic, half optimistic. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much. This is honestly great to, to find. Oh yeah. To uh, to but hey, thanks a lot. Like it was a great discussion. I had a lot of fun. Time to say goodbye. I wanted to ask you. I was, I was planning on asking you about. Um, I mean, is the NBA your favorite sport, or basketball your favorite sport? Uh, yeah, I think. That, uh, yeah. Um, well, I think basketball is. Like, I'm more into the college game than the NBA. Really? Yeah. yeah. Even, even though it's atrophied and everyone goes to the draft, and well, yeah, it's getting tougher. But, but uh, um, uh, uh, right, definitely is. But but I don't like the. Uh, yeah, for several years, like I thought that I didn't like the way that the NBA game has 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 evolved. And the last two or three years, I watched more of the playoffs, and and I confirmed I had this sense that the game was at the same time um, too predictable and too frenetic. 
And then I realized, so it's like the analytics-driven stuff, where so you drive to the basket one on two, one on three, one on four, kick it out to to, to like the six eleven guy that shoots the three, and that's NBA basketball. Yeah. Uh, no team defense anymore. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've always thought about this, like it's technically more efficient if you make more three pointers in the end. Right. But overall amount of times the ball goes in the basket is still fewer. Right. That's right. And, yeah. uh, in as a sort of like human element, it's not that it's not as fun as watching a bunch no, of that's right. pointers, you know? Uh, well, no, uh, no, I agree. And look, it's not just that just because I was like a mid range jump shooter in my own game, but that's <laughs> yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, uh, but yeah, but I like the spurs a lot. Okay. Right. So that's um, your team. That that you mean like the 2014, 2013 right, right. beautiful game. Right. So and, right now are you and also the Warriors, right? And yeah. When uh what I mean like when they were doing it. Yeah. I'm I'm a Warriors guy and I get you yeah. for being a bandwagon, but I'm from Seattle, so they took me. Oh wow, okay. So I get to I, I've given myself free agency for the rest of well, my life. Well, yeah, because it wouldn't be Memphis, right? Yeah, I mean, so. yeah Oklahoma City, yeah. <laughs> oh, right, that's right. Right. So who that's did you right. grow up cheering for if you grew up in New Orleans? Uh so yeah, I was a Celtics fan like in the 60s. Oh, wow. Yeah, That's right. controversial. Well, it wasn't controversial in the 60s. Yeah, I guess well, the whole league was pretty white. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, well, the Celtics, in fact, were the first team to start five black players in the okay. 60s. So, like, that whole, uh, you know, that whole invention of the Celtics as the Archie Bunker franchise was like a David Stern, right? I mean, phenomenon. era, yeah. Yeah. Make so, I mean... So I mean, actually, <laughs> so I mean, like I've suffered through the seventies. I liked, you know, I liked the bullets for instance, uh, and watched as much as I could watch, but I really didn't like, um, the way that Stern revitalized the game by turning it into like a cross between a soap opera and right. WWE. Right. So like, I was happy, like when, whenever, like any other team broke through that Celtics, Right, I mean Lakers thing. So, and, like I like the Sixers, like in '83, right? Too but so, right in I that mean, era. And I remember we we had those emails about you're not a big fan of like the LeBron, kind no, of, right? No, self, stuff. <laughs> no, oh no, no, that's and, right. And, and the NBA bubble and the social justice stuff. And, right. Oh yeah. No, I mean give it a break. Well, yeah. and I mean the idea is thinking about a legacy, but yeah. but like I'm like so yeah yeah I was so happy to hear Barkley. Uh, and maybe Shaq, I mean, say this too, but this notion of, of like going around the league to recruit all the stars to play with you so that you could win more championships to have a legacy. Oh, what the fuck is that? I mean, it, well, it's like all marketing. And so well, one of my favorite final series ever, and of course I was a huge Bulls fan and my time in Chicago coincided perfectly with, with the Bulls' first championship yeah, yeah. And, and the last. Uh, but, but, um, but, but it was when the Spurs put that ass kicking on the heat, right? Yeah. Because it was clear that one team was playing basketball. Right. And the other, like... That was tough because the year before, I was very much against the heat. And then oh, yeah. for them against... It became a weird, like, this is my race reductionist moment. I went to a bar in Brooklyn... Uh-huh. Everyone was white, and they were all cheering for the Spurs. And I was like, "This is weird." <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. That is weird. Yeah, no, I mean, that is Brooklyn, very not, weird. Like, how many San Antonian people can be in Brooklyn? So they're not. Right. They're not, it's not a, right. It's not a, no, no, no. Oh shit. Right. Yeah. So, but then, in hindsight, I was able to watch the videos later. I was like, oh yeah, that's pretty beautiful basketball. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Um, so you, you haven't adopted the Sixers as your hometown team? Oh, yeah, I have, actually. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, now that that hinky right. shit... Well, but I mean, Maury... Well, but the trust Maury, the system. But Maury also, you know, he's like the horrible... He's yeah, like well, analytics. Well, no, no, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, you have a Doc Rivers. You like Doc? Yeah, yeah. And I mean the, um, and I like the roster, right? I mean they, they, they could use some tweaking, but um, they lost the too much shooting, I think, with losing Seth Curry. But right. he's kind of a bad on defense. Um, right. Well, no, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And 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 Harden actually looked like he pl- played a little bit of defense last night too. I'm a lifelong Harden hater. I, I yeah. Think well, I can see why. No, yeah. yeah. Look, I mean, this is no, no. Like this is purely an instrumental moment for me, <laughs> right? Because right? I never liked him as a player, right? Yeah. Uh, so, like when I started graduate school in in Atlanta, the Hawks had only moved there from St. Louis a couple of years earlier. Right. Yeah. And they had a uh, you know Lou Hudson and Pete Maravich in in the backcourt, and and the Walt Bellamy was the center, and. And that's when I first learned the meaning of the phrase, not enough basketballs. Right. right yeah. And that's right. been a problem for Harden every place that he's played. I mean, but nobody, nobody's been as selfish as them ever, you know? No. And he's, and no. Maury enabled it. And I don't know, I kind of like, I like him beat as a personality, but I don't get this idea that he's some unstoppable. Um, no. Well, as I read someplace, uh, and I think I saw a touch of it. I mean, last night that he's not that great a three point shooter either. I mean, he's not, um, which is fine. You're seven foot, you know, 10, you don't have to be right. But, um, you know, both, both he and Harden just live on the free throw line and talk about right. it aesthetically right. and pleasing, you know? Right. Yeah. No, uh, no, I know. And, just, yeah. and like, well, well, no, I mean, Harden is not that good at, um, a three point shooter. He's not. I mean, if you took yeah. away the free throws, right? I mean, just like by any metric, he's not actually ever up there with them. Well, and that's another argument against the analytics-driven um, approach to the game, too. I mean, they Co- definitely milked they milked those technicalities, though, right? For as much as they're worth, right? Um, and probably right. have gone further than they ever yep. naturally deserve to be. Well, yeah, I know. I mean, that's why I'm hoping for like and like. Um, the organic rise of another version of the Warriors, right? I think that might be Memphis. Um, oh, okay. I, I like the I like the Bucks. I know they're. Oh yeah. I mean, I just like Giannis. I think he's amazing. I think. It's, oh man, he's an extraordinary athlete. And his yeah. story is kind of amazing. And so far, yeah. he hasn't shown all the douchey celebrities. No, no. And by the way, so I mean, last night was apparently Greek Appreciation Night. Okay. Right at the uh, um, uh, at the Wells Fargo Center, and, and uh, was it like a big? Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, it was. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Time to say-